Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. Hello to anyone who might be hearing this later on um, the Temple Beth Am podcast. Um, I know some people are not here in person today because they're not feeling well. I know some people are not here in person because they live far away. I'm going to make another plea to the people who are um, generally healthy and um, and are not COVID nervous about being here, but it's a question of, con- of, of convenience. I'm going to encourage as many people as possible to come in person. Again, your COVID uh, um, risk level is entirely up to you. Uh, but in terms of making the decision mostly on comfort and convenience, it really makes a difference when most of the people who are here are, are in person. And then, of course, we're going to keep live streaming it, but um, it's just easier. So uh, whoever's not feeling well, I hope you feel better soon, and we're going to jump into this. Um, as I said um, last week, we're going to learn most or all, depending on how we go today, of one of the oddest Rashis that we're going to come across. Um, if you've studied 10 Rashis, you'll know this Rashi is strange. But if you've studied 1,000 Rashi, like many of you have, you're really going to feel like you're in a different intellectual exercise. Rashi is essentially going to become a miniature page of Talmud um, uh, in, in, in a way that he normally, do, normally doesn't do. Normally, Rashi is extracting from Talmudic or Midrashic passages and turning it into a very compact little terse explanation, but he usually doesn't doesn't show a dialogue. Um, and I again, I, I do not have a doctorate in Rashi, so I'm sure someone has written about this individual Rashi and why it's here. And we'll notice a couple of things that are odd about it. One is that he seems to be going backwards um, <laughs> to review material that he feels like he you know hadn't satisfactorily resolved. And he's He's, in, he's engaging us in a conversation that is just um, in, in category, entirely different than we normally do. Um, if you like Talmudic arguments, this will be satisfying. If your brain hurts when you're trying to hold on to the uh, many different suppositions, when the rabbis say, what, you know, this is what you might have said, and the reason why what you might have said is not going to work because you might also have said this, if that begins to hurt your brain like it sometimes does even for me, then this Rashi will be uh, challenging. Um, and let's see how far we get into it. Um, I actually think we have one small Rashi beforehand. We're on verse 9 of chapter 6. There are three Rashis on that, um, uh, on that verse. The first two have dibureha machil have words that are directly related um, to the verse, and then that's when we. And then after that, we get into the the, the the odd Rashi to remind us of the verse, chapter six, verse nine. By Daber Moshe Kane, Moses said thusly, as God had uh, instructed him, El Bnei Israel to the children of Israel. Below Shamuel Moshe, we've we've done this already. They weren't able to hear, they weren't able to listen, they weren't paying attention. Something to Moses. Me as something like as a result of kotzer ruach, literally shortness of spirit, or maybe even shortness of breath, ume avodakasha, and from hard labor. We saw that that u, that u, uh, um, in the syntax of that u is definitely just an and, right? It's, since it's not in the front of a verb, we can't wonder, oh, is it a vavaipulch or vavachibor? It just means and. We saw the translations last week. 
that some of them were translating them as shortness of breath related to the hard work, right? As if the U is not there. The way it's written is that these are two different things. Why didn't they pay heed to Moses? Because number one, shortness of breath, shortness of spirit, and because of hard labor, okay? We read the first Rashi uh, on the Lo Shamuel Moshe, where Rashi says that they weren't able to receive his tanhumim, his uh, words of comfort that their situation will eventually get better. And now we're on the second Rashi, Mikosir Ruach. Okay? Everyone kind of agree where we are? Uh, Marshall, you want to read um, the, the second Rashi on Kotzer Ruach? Hi, Sue. Booker Tov. And now let's get uh, Marshall a, um, a microphone. So, I mean, Kotzer Ruach. Uh, Can you all hear Marshall? Pardon? Okay, got So the translation which I have is if one is in anguish, his breath comes in short gasps and he cannot draw long breaths. Right, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty uh, darn good translation. Uh, I would say the second phrase a little bit differently, right? That that if you are meitzer, if you have tsaris, your ruach, literally the wind coming out of you and your breath. I wonder what. Um, so he, maybe the ruach, the rucho here means his spirit is tsara. Everything is truncated. If you've ever experienced or been close to someone who's experienced anything like a depression, whether it's a profound clinical depression. Or, or more of like the blues. One of the things that um, we now know all the time, and, and, and it's, it's part of the literature, is that what's happening up here impacts what's happening up, uh, coming out of your mouth physiologically, right? So the, the relationship between the emotions and the psychology and the physiology is very, very apparent, right? So if you ever experienced or know someone who's been depressed, sometimes one of the things that you experience them is that their affect is low. Their sentences are short. They're, they can't. They can't do what I'm doing now and really project because it takes a certain amount of psychic vitality to project your voice and to and to say a long sentence, right? And people who are suffering, right? It, it's not that they are not necessarily thinking thoughts, but they can't actually produce the air. So this is a thousand, eight hundred, nine hundred years before Freud. Rashi is saying that what the Torah is saying is the reason why they were. Um, um, not able to respond to Moshe in the way that he, they normally would, is they literally had kotzeruach, they had shortness of breath from their sufferings, which is what people experience even to this day. Marshall, and then Ilan, and then I see Rick's hand. Oh, no, Ilan. Yeah, I want to go back to actually the word they use, which is stress. I, I had a heart attack 10 years ago, and the doctors at the time said to me, Obviously, you're overweight. Obviously, you eat like crap. But the single greatest contributor to your heart disease was stress, specifically stress, not depression, stress. And that unless that I got rid of stress in my life, that was I was likely to continue to have problems. So I, you know, I I, I agree with you on the uh, on the depression issue, but I also think that these the Israelites were really stressed, and it's takes a lot out of you, it just does. Yeah, 
It's interesting. Thank you for that, Elon, and, and for sharing that. It's interesting that this comment of Rashi, which, and again, I, I find to be a millennium prescient, right? That that the notion of of depression and 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 and, and true the what what they used to call melancholia uh, is a rather modern one. But it doesn't mean that humans didn't experience that before there was language to it. So a human beings 500 years ago and 1,000 years ago and 2,000 years ago and 3,000 years ago experienced stress, um, experienced emotional dips, and their affect was probably not that dissimilar from what ours would be now, even if they didn't have the language to express it. And I'm fascinated that Rashi, Rashi got that. Rashi got that. And Rashi assumed that the Torah got that. That there's a direct relationship between your emotional um, present tense and what your body is able to produce. What I do find interesting is that this is a verse that is not explaining that the Israelites weren't able to respond, but they weren't able to show mea, right? That they, they, because their breath was so short, they couldn't, even, they couldn't even listen to long sentences, right? And again, if you've ever experienced or been close to someone who's experienced depression, you know that's the case too someone who is going through that kind of a dip, if you have a really beautifully worded, um, you know, uh, seven line paragraph that you're saying or reading to them on something that's significant, they're not listening after the fourth word because of their code seruach. They, they, they cannot process it. Uh, Rick and then Diane Larry. Um, I was just gonna kind of state the obvious. Uh, Rashi chooses Meitzar there, Shehu Meitzar. Yeah, Meitzar. Meitzar. It's kind of like a. It's like a. It's a. Is it a tzera? Because I can't see here. Adjectival verb describing the state status of being in tzara, in in discomfort or distress. Right, and he chooses that because of the word Mitzrayim and the the straight the narrowness there and the constriction and. Um, Gesher Tsar Ma'od and all that kind of thing you have to so I just thought I'd throw that in there great I, I totally read over that I'm sure you're correct that Meitzer is uh, was he wasn't just picking out from a list of synonyms of what uh, how he could have said this but that is definitely evocative of Mitzrayim good pickup thank you uh, Diane Larry so this is probably obvious to everybody but it's not just feeling the blues or psychological depression, but there's a feedback loop between physical, how you feel physically and then mentally. And I can in personal relate to the, to, to the whole idea of, of Ketzer Ruach being an asthmatic and how that affects me and my ability to, to communicate. So I haven't read ahead. I am really hopeful that Rashi may have some suggestions <laughs> how to deal with this uh, prepare to be disappointed and you're right larry that it goes in both directions right that that how you're it's both the case that what we are experiencing psychically emotionally spiritually <coughs> impacts the our physical well-being of our heart and our ability to produce speech and an inability to produce speech can put one in the sense of uh, of service absolutely and that feedback loop is something that i am not even close to an expert at knowing how to break yeah. I just know how difficult it is to break. And on those few occasions where I've been successful at doing so, um, it's been a conscious effort and a hard conscious effort at, at engaging in something like behavior modification. But I would think that you might have something to say 
in terms of meditation being a way of getting at that, getting at this conundrum. I'll linger there for a second and then we'll go to Joanna's question. It's interesting you mentioned meditation. Tonight is the gathering at my home for people who are already signed up and are considering signing up for this meditation retreat that we're doing in Guatemala. And one of the things that I'm gonna talk about tonight and talk about throughout the retreat is that is the paradox that I talk about a lot when I leave meditations, which is that the more you expect a meditative experience to be specifically productive, the more you'll be disappointed by it, which is very similar to the prayer experience. If I, if I want a lot out of this Amida right now, it's probably not gonna produce. At the same time, one of the reasons that one lives a life with meditation is so that overall, you're making some progress on yourself and there's a, there's a certain long-term nondescript productivity out of it in the same way that we'd like to think that by being prayer people, davening people, we're not just you know, fulfilling a religious obligation of potentially appeasing a God, but that we are better humans for it. So, the, so it's hard to give a prescription, right? I am dubious of religious traditions, even sub-religious traditions within Judaism who say, ah, you know, what, what, what's, the, what's the prescription? You know, you know say, say 10 chapters of Tehillim a day and you'll be fine. I'm dubious of that, but I do think it's a good thing to say to Tehillim, right? Um, it's, it reminds me of a, that scene in um, Frisco Kid that I use all the time when he's with the Native Americans and they're talking about rain and God and, and the, 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 the chief is saying to um, um, the Gene Wilder character, Avram, Avram Belinsky, Avram Belinsky, you know, uh, you know what, why doesn't your God make rain? And... Uh, the wilder character says, you know, it's not that he, he can't make rain. It's, not, it's just that's, that's not what we pray to him for. We pray that we get, God gives us strength when we are feeling weak. God, God shines a light when we're, all, we're crawling around in darkness, but he doesn't make rain. And then he slaps his knee and then rain starts pouring outside the teepee. And then he goes, Some, you know, and then every once in a while, he changes his mind, right? So we don't, I think, you can correct me if you're wrong, when we say Mashiv HaRuach or Vatem Talumatar in the Amidah, I don't think that most of us are thinking that by our saying it, we are going to impact the, the precipitation out there. But we do think that by being people who pray for rain, we're somehow involved in a, um, in a, in a prayer life that's going, to, that's going to help the world and maybe even in, in, in rain-based ways, right? So Rashi's not going to get there, and I still don't have a, a direct answer for it. I want to say one other thing to what you said, Larry. Um, the, this, the, the double, the bi-directional feedback loop, right? So I'm someone who, as you know, is speaking all the time for my job, and I'm speaking publicly all the time. And sometimes I speak from a pre prepared text, rarely, but sometimes when I want to get something exactly right, like at a, at a eulogy, and sometimes I prepare, I have notes in front of me, and sometimes I, I, I pretty much know what I'm going to say, but there are no notes in front of me because I want to speak um, so, somewhat extemporaneously. When I'm feeling a little bit low, I'm not talking a clinical depression, a little bit not myself, but nervous about something. If I'm having a little bit of self-doubt, not like self-loathing, but self-doubt about how I'm gonna be received or how well the content I'm about to share, I start to mumble on my words and it starts to feel like I have rocks in my mouth and I cannot produce fluid language, which I know I am generally capable of doing. And as soon as I start to experience myself being less capable than normal of being able to produce 
fluid language, it boomerangs back at me and I start to feel worse about myself and less confident and more emotionally down, which of course makes it that much harder for me to produce it, right? It, one can spiral as one pays too much attention to the, re, the, the relationship between one's emotional situation and one's physical situation. I think the other side is that one can sometimes spiral up, right? So if you're feeling very confident, sometimes that will actually produce better content. And the more you produce better content, you might actually feel more uh, confident and up. So I think we're still novices in realizing the actual connection between uh, body and mind. It's fascinating to me that Rashi got some of it and Rashi assumed that the Torah knew it thousands of years before. Okay, thanks Rick, very kind. Then you, then you have to watch more. Uh, Joanna, thanks for waiting on that. Um, I happen to have once given a Dvar Torah on Parshat Kitisa on the Vishamru verses where I referenced Rashi there, which is how I know that Rashi, on the word Vayinafash. And it's quite fascinating because in light of this, which I didn't know, I wish I would have known to compare it to this then, um, because there he says, what's, you know, he's getting at what's the difference between Shavad and Vayinafash. So he relates that Vayinafash is that ability to take a calming breath and he specifically says, after um, tiresome work, after hard work. So it's really interesting now, a really interesting contrast to think about like slavery and Shabbat as two op completely opposite ends of the spectrum, which in many respects they are. Uh, thank you, uh, Joanna. And you know, with the wonders of the internet, I'm gonna pull up the Rashi there and you can walk us through it because I would like to be refreshed about that Rashi. So it's now on the screen. Walk us through it as, as, the, as you understand it. So Ketargumo Vinach, like, the, I mean, because I know the Rashi, I would say like the expected translation here is rested and the V is really a but. nefesh, You know, the word, um, the Shorish Nun, Feishin being used as a verb is really related to the language of nefesh, of one's soul. Shemeshiv nafsho, that one's nefesh is restored. Unishimato behargio, and his breath is, is a calm one. Mitora hamalacha, you know, after hard labor. This would be a, the, 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 I, I, I'm angry at myself for in the, in the conversations we recently had at the board meeting about. Uh, turning, creating a, a, a policy of sabbatical for every full-time employee in Tel Betham. I didn't quote this Rashi because that's essentially what it's saying, right? You may shivna show, you restore your power, your spiritual power, and your very breath, bahargio, in one's, in the relaxation that one, that happens, mitorach hamlacha, from the incessant burden of work. Was there more there? Or really that I mean, I think that's the ikar of it. And so it's really, you know, like my mind now wonders when Rashi wrote this, was he thinking of when we were slaves and we were, you know, Kotzer Ruach? And um, yeah. um, because, you know, in both circumstances, you work hard, but in one circumstance, it's a normal kind of working hard that has a, an opportunity for restoration. And that makes all the difference in the world. You know, it's fascinating. There are many words for many things in Hebrew. One of the words for vacation in Hebrew is what? 
There's Chofesh, which is freedom. There's also Nofesh. No to, 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 to do a getaway is Nofesh, right? So the, the, a vacation literally means is, is it's souling, it's spiriting. It's taking a break from Avodakasha. Avodakasha doesn't have to be oppressive labor that Pharaoh puts on you. It's the hard work of working, right? Um, so Shabbat Vayinafash, God was saying from the very beginning that if you're going to work six days, there's got to be some kind of nofesh. Um, so um, one day I'll experience a Shabbat that way. Okay, uh, Marshall. Um, you know, this whole word of, um, of Ruach, I'm just remembering from beginning of Bray Sheet, and I wasn't with you, Rabbi Clickfeld, when you started this in Monroe. You know, <laughs> Where were you? Well, I wasn't here, right? Ruach Elohim Rachefet Al Hamayim. And the Ruach of God, something hovered maybe over the face of the water. So, what does Ruach mean? Everyone said, okay, fine. The Spirit of God. No, it was the wind of God. Or maybe it was both, right? And I look here and I see just, I see the phrase, Rucho and Shimato. And I think Alter sort of captures this. He even makes reference to, to, to Rashi. Uh, because the ruach, the, the Hebrew ruach can mean breath, wind, or spirit. This translation follows Rashi's understanding of the phrase, a construction that is attractive because of its concreteness, the slaves groaning under hard bondage, a condition made all the harder by Moses' bungled intervention, can hardly catch their breath, and so are in no mood to listen to Moses. Others render this term as impatient or crushed spirit. And I, I even think of the phrase, um, sort of, I, the wind was knocked out of me, you know. I didn't, didn't have any breath. And all these various uh, translations of the word ruach all really points to the beauty of the Hebrew language. It's multi. Uh, multi-levels, and I think only enrich our, our understanding of the text. Thanks, Marshall. With uh, Rebecca not here, I'm going to use the phone as she did and kind of uh, point it to whoever's speaking in the room. The, speaking of multi-direction, like, like I'm streaming you and you're streaming me streaming you, and then someone's streaming me streaming you streaming me. So uh, you can see me, you can see me showing you other people in the room when someone else is speaking. Okay, I'll just put that right here for now. Barry, yes. So I'm listening to all of this and uh, two streams of thought uh, coming to me. Uh, is this working? Okay. Yeah. Um, one is uh, the, the, the stress, uh, the, the physical stress. If, if a, a, a board and someone's pressing a board on my chest with all their might, uh, there, there's no breath in me to do much. Um, but in, in meditation, uh, giving away myself, lo losing my sense of self. I'm not physically emoting in this stress. I'm not there. Uh, that's a, a test of meditation to actually re release myself uh, and be in the other space. Um, but in, in a community, uh, in this situation, uh, that's an impossible uh, achievement. On an individual, it's possible. Very good, Mary. There, there, there was nothing that the Israelites could possibly have done to somehow meditate their way out of 
the uh, of the tsaras that they were in. They they needed a a, a more powerful redeemer. Okay. Anything else on this first? Because now we're going to get into the the that long strange Rashi. So kind of buckle up. Um, Joel, will you bring this closer to Marshall just so that people can where there can just be seeing Marshall up close? Okay. So uh, Marshall, um, um, jump in. I'm I'm going to. I both want you to read this Rashi as is without a whole lot of like cliff notes. But I, I I'm going to need to give you a, a couple of a couple of connective threads. So um, they have a great view of your fingers, Joel. Ah. <laughs> uh, and they're very good. You're not you're very nice fingers. Um, some connective threads so that even from his first word, it makes sense. Ra what what people who have studied this Rashi um, have said, and I and I haven't read modern scholarly material on this, but I've read a lot of like the super commentaries on Rashi is that he's basically going back. He's gotten to this, this, this part of the era. If you look ahead, we're on verse nine, right? By verse, thir um, by verse 14, look ahead, this whole narrative section is over. By verse 14, we're getting into um, a genealogy and names of people. So we're about to end the long pre-section of the pre-Exodus story of the burning bush and the initial moments that God tells Moses to go back to the Israelites and tell them what's happening, right? And then we're going to take a, a break from that. So it's almost as if people believe that Rashi realizes that if he has anything more to say on this issue, he should say it now. That's usually not the way Rashi operates. Rashi is not writing an essay. Rashi is not writing a, a, like a chapter in a book about you know, a chapter of Tanakh. He's writing a linear commentary, but all of a sudden here, he's, it's as if he's saying, you know what? I don't think I conveyed all the things that I wanted to convey that had been sitting in my mind since the beginning of Parshat Ve'era. Go back a second and look at the begin at just, just the verses of Parshat Ve'era, chapter six, verse two. Remember that uh, in our um, designation, Ve'era begins on the second verse of a chapter uh, because the Christian def, uh, distinction is different. How does our parsha begin? By Elohim speaking to Moses, saying to him, Ani Adonai. Remember what Rashi said there about the ways in which um, the previous ancestors, they may have heard that yud heh vav -Heh was a thing, but they didn't get to experience God that way. Va'era al-Avraham, and I revealed myself to Avraham and Isaac and Jacob using the name El Shaddai, but my name, Adonai, was not made clear to them. And I now fulfill the covenant with them uh, to give them the land of Canaan that they had uh, dwelled in. And how am I doing that? And now I'm paraphrasing by verse five, I'm listening to the, um, to the cries of the Israelites as they have been oppressed in Egypt. Those first four verses, really the first three verses, we spent a lot of time talking about who, how God allowed God's self to be re revealed and to whom, and what does it mean for God to be one who fulfills promises? Rashi said a lot of it about that then, but it seems now he's saying, you know what, reader, before we leave this scene, I have more to say on this topic. So I feel like that is, a, is almost obligatory context to understand what's, what you're about to read. Okay, with that in mind, um, unless anyone has any questions or comments on that, Marshall, start reading Karov.
right after. Uh, I just have my different things uh, here. One second, sorry. No problem. Karola Inyan close to this thing. Shamati Beparasha Zo. A little louder, please. Pause. Just translate those words because we have to linger on what those, those words mean for a second. Okay, I'll just do a, a literal translation. Close to this matter, I heard this in the section from Rabbi Baruch, the son of Rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer. Okay, so it sounds like he's writing a, an, an essay, right, or, or, or a drash. I do not know. I'm sure it is knowable. I do not know who Rabbi Baruch Rabbi Eliezer is. If you've been in this class 10 years, maybe once, Rashi makes, twice, Rashi makes reference to some named person that you learned something from. It's very rare. And we don't even know what Le'in means. What matter? It seems not to be, as will become clear going forward, the immediate antecedent. The immediate antecedent is this question of kotzer ruach and shortness of breath. But it seems, and this is why I introduced it this way, that what he means by this matter, it's the stuff I, Rashi, was speaking about just a few verses before, but for us it's months ago because we're going slowly, at the beginning of Parshat Ve'era. And the way I would somehow render the sentences, you know, related to this topic, I, I, I heard with respect to this matter from one of my teachers, Rabbi Barach but Rabbi Eliezer. Right, bringing us a little bit back in the parsha. Rick, question, comment. Yeah, the, the Silverman um, uh, Rashi has a footnote there uh, on this section, and all it says is, "It is evident that this refers only to the explanation of Ani Adonai." Yeah, right. Um, so it's it's evident, but that makes it odder that he's putting it here, right? Because if you're Rashi. And you had extra thoughts to say on Ani Adonai, you could have put it then. So we don't really know why it's here, but it does seem clear slash evident that Inyanze, this matter, is not the matter he was just talking about, but the matter from earlier on in the part in 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 the chapter. Barry, Rashi didn't have an insert so, function in his computer, so he put it here. <laughs> right. I mean, it does raise a question in general how. The intellectual exercise of writing a commentary and editing it and publishing it even took place a thousand years ago. But even so, right, if the rabbis were able to order the Talmud, not perfectly well, but pretty well a thousand years before that, it's interesting Rashi couldn't have just put this earlier. Okay, go ahead. Uh, the Hevili. He brought me this proof from this text. The word sort of interesting if you have a there. Sort of a closer, Marshall, I'm sorry. Sorry. Okay. So he brought me this proof, or this uh, insight, something from Reish Aleph Hay, right. from this text. Right. Uh, and the comment you were going to say about that, it's interesting. That I found that here, is a like a proof, but also Reish Aleph Hay shows up there to see. Yeah. I can see something yeah. based on this text. It is interesting why the, the Hebrew word re'ayah, which means proof, I mean, it makes sense, right? But it's just a different way of connecting the ideas that we have in English. Our word for proof doesn't relate to the verb to see, although 
they're connected ideas. In Hebrew, they're etymologically siblings, right? So he brought me, whoever this Rabbi Baruch and Rabbi Eliezer is, brought me proof from this verse. And what's the verse? Is the verse that I have up on the, on the screen. Okay, so I think you in the room can see it, right? And then you on, on, on Zoom can see it. 16th chapter of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, for those of you who don't remember, is essentially a prophet of doom, telling the Israelites in the wicked generation that destruction is coming and they're not listen, listening to him. Right? Therefore, I will, I'll instruct them, I'll teach them. This time, I will let them know my hand, but it's, it's my might or my, uh, my prowess, my power. And boy, I'm, I'm accentuating, will they know that my name is God? Right? So here, um, what's what's the connection between this verse and our topic? Shmi Adonai, right? So um, this is the this is what she shows that what Rashi is referring to here is the stuff he had said before on uh, whether or not the Israelites uh, in the pre, in the generation of the ancestors knew the name of God. Here, Jeremiah is saying they will certainly know that my name is God. What's the tone of Jeremiah's um, comment here? They will, they will know that my name is God when I show what? Fulfill my promises. Or... And, and when I come down harshly on them, right? Mm -hmm. Jeremiah is saying, my hand. my hand on you, not on your oppressors, mm -hmm. right? Jeremiah is saying, I'm going to you know, destroy Jerusalem, right? You are going to know my wrath because you are sinning against me in the temple that you have, you have sitting there in Jerusalem is being used for disgusting purposes. And boy, will you know that my name is, and I'm going to fulfill this promise. Very different tone of voice than Parshat Ve'era, which is, they're, they're, they're going to know that my name is God and I fulfill my promise not to destroy them, but to destroy their enemies so that they'll finally get to the land of Canaan, right? So that's what Rashi is going to play with, okay? Um, Limad knew. So this is to teach us that God, I guess, amen is to fulfill. Right, what a great word, amen, to amen something, right? We, the, the, we use the word amen as like a, at the end of a bracha. May it be so. May it be so. I remember the day in seventh grade Hebrew school class where my teacher said that amen means so be it. I, don't, I, don't, I didn't know what the words, words so be it meant, but I knew that that's what I was supposed to think in my head when she said amen. Um, but le amen is the PL to, to make someone believe or to make something believable, to reify, right? To, um, to, make, it, to, make, it, to make it so that someone could say about it, Amen. One second, Alan. Keep going, Marshall. Afilu lefuranut modia sheshemoa denied. That even in terms of punishment, um, he fulfills his words. That he he fulfills his words. That his name is Adonai. I'm gonna I'm gonna change the the, the commas a little bit, Marshall. This verse teaches us that when God is coming to make it clear that God fulfills God's promises. Even when it comes to puranut, destruction, punishment, God says, Shmi Adonai, right? You're going to know that my name is God. Even when it's bad stuff, God is fulfilling. Vechol shekein, ha'amana 
and he, how much more, and even so his, uh, I guess he fulfills his words uh, when it's a matter of, uh, I guess, goodness. Right. So if God is going to say, boy, are you going to know that my name is Adonai when I'm proving to you that I'm going to fulfill my promises to be harsh with you, it, it, it makes even more sense that when God is, is ensuring that God's going to fulfill a positive promise, that God's going to say, you're going to know my name is Shem Adonai. So this is a verse that Rashi's teacher said to Rashi, will, will, will strengthen your point on the verses from four or five verses ago, that this notion of Shmi Adonai means that God's going to fulfill God's promises. Mm -hmm. uh, let me add one more sentence, and then we'll go to Alan and then Rick. You know how we marvel? I certainly marvel, and sometimes we mention it, that Rashi really, really, really knows the Tanakh by heart. Like that, that he he he's reading a verse in uh, in Shmot, and he hears one word, and he knows that the way to make sense of that word is from the seventh chapter of the prophet Zephania, right? Like he, it, it's not just, it's not a joke, it's not an exaggeration. We say that he knows uh, the Tanakh by heart, but I'm finding interesting him sharing with us that he didn't always know it by heart, and one of his teachers says, Rashi, you might be forgetting. There's a verse in Jeremiah which you could have used in your commentary. Right, he he had forgotten for, and he's okay to forget. He had forgotten that there's a verse in Jeremiah which makes the arguments that Rashi was making three of our verses ago stronger. I'm just fascinated by that. Right, that in order to know something by heart, you have to once have have not known it by heart and have had been taught to you, either self-taught, autodidactically, autodidactically, or from a mentor. Uh, Alan, Rick, and is Barry's hand up? Okay. Uh, and, and then slightly from Barry. Alan. Uh, I was just very surprised about this, about seeing Adonai, which is normally associated with God's mercy, according to the rabbis, as being something that does punishment. And I love the Rashi here that focuses on it's Adonai in punishment, but it's Ad, call the Homer even more so when it's going to be Adonai in giving goodness. Yeah. Listen, the rabbinic overlay of Adonai, Yudhevavhe being Rachamim, and Elohim being judgment, works all the time until it doesn't. Right? <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, it's a wonderful frame. I'm given many ser sermons about it, many charges to bar mitzvah, boys and girls about it, except that sometimes Yudhevavhe is used when God is speaking about being harsh, and sometimes Elohim is being used when God is is speaking from compassion. So it's, it's a wonderful frame. It's just not a perfect frame. Yeah. Uh, Rick, thanks for that, Alan. You're welcome. Yes, uh, along the theme of names, so here Rashi is specifically using HaKadosh Baruch Hu, which, uh, um, unless I'm wrong, he, he hasn't used that description. Uh, I, I was looking back pages. He, he, he doesn't usually use that whole long what is it? One, two, three with a chip chick, four uh, uh, letters. Forget the kisha in front of it. But um, he deliberately chose that form of God's name there. He, he could have just used hey, hey, good, like he usually does, I think. So what do you make of that? Um, maybe he's saying like uh, each generation calls God what he, uh, they want to. So Rashi is choosing this one in the Middle Ages. I don't know. I'm just, I thought it was amusing that he, I, I haven't, is it right that we haven't seen that in a while? 
Uh, um, I'm sure you're right. Because, you know, Akadosh Baruch Hu. I don't. I don't. A while for us means something different because, like, you know, it, it could be could be 17 verses ago, and that could have been months ago. But I, I don't think it's sui generis. I don't think mm. Rashi never uses Hakadosh Baruch Hu. Um, but okay. But but it is interesting that God, that Rashi uses that term here. Um, good. Anything else so far? Okay. So that's Rashi. Oh, sorry, Barry. Yeah, Barry's half comment. We'll give you a full comment, Barry. Well, and there's two comments now. So the, the, the Shemot, uh, the, we think of sure. Shemot as being the, the, uh, the, the names of the people who came down in Egypt, but Shemot is uh, God's revealing God's name in different ways. I'm just being hit with that now. The other is uh, Rashi uh, expresses his own humility that uh, although, yeah, okay, he knew the entire thing by heart, but he can admit that uh, he may have forgotten something and someone reminded him. Yeah. Uh, I think that's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks, Barry. Okay. So that's part one of this oddly placed long and, and, and different than a normal Rashi Rashi. Now part two. Okay. Rabotenu durashuhu le'inyan shalmala. And our rabbis, uh, I guess, interpreted it in this matter in it, regarding the matter of above, I guess previous in the text. Okay, now those four words or five words need, need a lot of um, context to make sense. Rabotenu drashuhu, our sages gave a midrash on it. What's now the immediate um, antecedent to what, to, to what he's talking about? What's the, what's the it? So but it's not the last verse. So in this new weird Rashi, Rashi has established a new antecedent, a new previous topic, and it's not the last verse we've been discussing. It's the first three verses of Vaera, okay? So when he says, Rabotinu drashuhu, our rabbis drashed it, the it he's referring to is verses two, three, four of our chapter, in which God had said, that I'm, I am God and that I didn't make my name known to the previous ancestors. And when the rabbis drashed it, Inyan Shalmala, they connected those verses to a, uh, a, a previous issue far above or, or more above that. The Inyan Shalmala, like an, an issue that was above it before it, is not the three verses, but something that came before that. And what was that? Shamar. Um, okay, so now we got to go back to the end of Parshat Shmot. Look at um, chapter five. I don't need to pull up on screen because you all have the book of Shmot. Chapter five, um, verse 22. Okay, so very, uh, I guess this is the, the, the anti-penultimate verse of the book of, of Parshat Shmot. When Moses sees that the initial attempt to get Pharaoh to relent made it harder for the Israelites, and the Israelites complained to Moses, making Moses' job harder, we read in verse 22, by Yashav Moshe, where it's page, um, everyone have it, right? Chapter 5, chapter 522, by Yashav Moshe, Moses returned El Adonai to God, Vayomer and Vayomar, and said, Adonai, God, Why have you made life so difficult for these this people? Lama Why did you send me? 
what's, if you remember from back then, what was, what's, what's Moshe's affect in that verse? How, how is he acting towards God? It's challenging. Challenging, challenging, God. challenging might be the most um, generous way of describing him. You could describe him as whiny, complaining, right? Mo God's, and I'm, I'm kind of setting up what Rashi is about to do this midrash. God had said Moses on this uh, uh, professional task. Moses didn't want to accept it, but he did. In his first attempt to kind of intercede between Mo uh, Pharaoh and the Israelites, things got worse. The Israelites complained to Moses. Moses complained back to God. Why are you making this so hard? What, we're, what Rashi is saying now in our verse is, there is a connection between in the opening lines of Parshad Va'era and my name of God that I did not make known to the previous ancestors, but now I make my promise known. This is a connection between that and the fact that Moses complained early on in his job. Just hold that association because if you don't, then the next few lines won't make sense. Barry? No, it's okay. Go, go on. I'm a, I'm okay. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, go ahead. Omar lo akadosh borahu, God said to him, Chaval aldi abdan vela mishtakhin. This is a common phrase. Uh, it's like uh, in, in Jew speak, yeshiva speak, and yeshiva speak, and from speak, there are certain phrases from rabbinic literature that become part of the, the, the way that people speak to each other. You, if you spend enough time amongst yeshiva Jews, you'll, pe you'll hear people reference this phrase in normal parlance. See if you can translate it. Uh, well, it's at least a translation I have since my Aramaic is, this is not that strong. Um, alas, for those that are gone. Right, so chaval, woe, al avdin, on those that are avad, that are uh, no longer here. Lost, maybe. Velo mishtachin, and are no longer found. This phrase is basically nostalgia for those who are no longer with us, but it's almost always used as a critique of the ones who are, right? It's rhapsodic about, right, the great generation you know, if you're if you're rhapsodizing about the great American generations of the '50s or '60s or whatever, I'm not I'm not saying one one should do that. It, it's a it's a subtle or not so subtle critique that such great people are not in our country anymore, right? Um, and if you are waxing rhapsodic about the tremendous uh, efflorescence of culture and learning in Warsaw in the 1930s, you're not just bemoaning the Nazis' destruction. You're saying. Yeah, they don't make Jewish communities like that anymore. That's a situation I might, if you're remembering, you know, the Yiddish theater in Warsaw in the 1930s, the Chaval al the Avdin We don't find people like that anymore. They don't make them like that anymore. Okay, so I'm gonna have to keep doing this so you remember what what what's going on here because this is a Talmudic argument. Okay, Rashi is saying that the rabbis said on the connection between the opening lines of our parsha where God is saying, I'm going to make myself revealed. And the connection between that and the fact that Moshe complained and that Moshe um, um, was like kind of hectoring God. What's your name? What's your name? They're asking what your name. I need to know what your name is. That on that, basically God said, ay, 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 Moshe, I, I, you're making me miss Abraham. You're making me miss Isaac. 
and you're making me miss Jacob. Woe on those who, who were so great, and where can they be found? They didn't complain. They didn't complain, okay? So that, that's what it's setting up. Go ahead. Uh, this is my translation, which I think is good. I really have reason to deplore the death of the patriarchs. I know the word Lehitone means to complain, at least in modern Hebrew. So, yeah, Lehit Onain and Lehit Lonain in modern Hebrew are mostly oh, interchangeable. To complain. But, but Lehit Onain is more like to, to, to groan, and you, it could be a groaning from pain, not just a groaning from complaining. Uh -huh. This is God saying that to Moses. Lehit Onain with an ayin? I don't think so, but, but I could be wrong. I don't know that an I in there works. Yes, with an I in about asking and answering. Lehit onen. I have to I have to look that up. Um, so this is within a midrash. This is not Rashi saying this. Rashi saying the rabbi said God looks to Moshe and says, "Oi, it was so sad that those ancestors, those those patriarchs, had to die. Right? Try not take. Try not." Try to take, not take that personally, right? Like, you know, Lahav deal. You know, it's, you know, uh, November of 20, 2009, and someone comes to my office and says, oh, that Rabbi Rembam, he was wonderful, right? <laughs> right? Right? Like, I'm not saying that happened. I'm saying, like, that's what this is like, right? Oh, those pressman years. Okay. Harbe Pamim. Harbe Pamim, Nigleti Alehem, Be'el Shaddai, Lo Amrui, Mashimcha. Many times I reveal my revealed to them, I guess my name as El Shaddai, and they did not say to me, what is your name? So again, this is Rashi paraphrasing a Midrash, not quoting directly. In that Midrash, God is saying to Moshe, you know, I let them know me as El Shaddai. When the, I did, they didn't say, do you have another name? Is there a more intimate name? Can I get closer to you? Are there other names that you're sharing with other people, not with me, God? They they just accepted it, right? Ata. The Ata Amarta Marshamo, and you said, "What is his name?" Ma Omar Alehem. What shall I say unto them? Right. So and so that is a paraphrase of when, or or, or a truncation of when the, uh, we read that Moses said to God, "When they ask me, God, what's his name? What should I tell them?" As if. Moshe was passing off, like, I don't care, but they might ask me, what's your name? I need to know. In the Midrash, it's presenting Moshe as being like annoying and feverishly saying, I need to know, give, give me more, give me more, because I need to, I need to know more information. Barry? Okay, I, I, I just got to put a word in for Moshe here. Uh, so uh, Abraham and Nitzhak, their, 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 their lives were totally different. They, 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 uh, no, just working. Okay. No, you're working, but Joel's fingers. So there's a lot going on. For those of you on Zoom, there, there's a lot going on to make this happen. They, 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 they were not tasked with, with leading a million people to do something. Uh, they, they were just tasked to do what, a specific thing for themselves in their, in their life. Uh, and and, and they were born free. What's Moshe? Moshe was accidentally born into a situation where he was raised in Pharaoh's house, and then he leaves and he's in the desert and God comes upon him. 
I mean, it's a totally situation, uh, situation and, and God's tasking him to lead a million people, and he can't speak. His, his <laughs> mouth doesn't work. So who are you? What's this all about? Yeah, see, it's, totally such a, it's unfair God to demand of Moshe the same thing he demanded of, of Hamanitzah. Right. So there's so many layers to this, because what Barry's responding to is the thrust of the Midrash that Rashi is quoting, but we don't even yet know if Rashi likes the Midrash he's quoting. He's just, he's just raising it that, 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 the, that the rabbis made this association to suggest that when, when um, God's, God's response at the beginning of this Parsha saying, I promise to make my, my name known to them and I'll establish my covenant with them, it was a response, according to the Midrash, to Moshe's incessant, whiny complaining. Okay? Now, that gets to Vagam uh, Hakimoti. Now, Rashi now is out, out of the Midrash and back to Rashi, right? And what's the Vagam Hakimoti? And I know there's a lot to hold on together. And if you hold on to 60% of it, I give you a lot of credit. Go back three verses or four verses to verse four of our chapter. This is the last of the three verses that opens Parshat Va'era that Rashi seems to be trying to say more about, right? So um, chapter six, verse four, v'gam hakimoti et briti itam. And so God says, I will establish uh, my, or prompt, I will keep my covenant with them, latet lehem to give to them at Eretz Kena'an, the land of Canaan, at Eretz Mugurehem, the land of their sojournings, Asher Garuba, that they live there. Okay, so Rashi's now bringing us back to this verse, okay? Um, and hey, before we go back to that verse, can we yeah. comment on the previous one or you'd rather not? No, go ahead. Comment away. We're clearly I, not going to finish this Rashi anyway. So go ahead. I, I was going to say, I don't feel bad because we're not going to finish today. And Diane has something else to say. Good. When I was young, I used to ask my father, how come? And he always would criticize me and say, stop using that phrase. How come you, when you were just laning the, the verse, um, from, um, Chapter five, verse twenty-two. You reminded me of a of a discussion we had when you said "lama." You didn't say "lama." I went back and I checked all the previous um, uh, trope on the word "lama," and they're all "lama." It's the only time up to now in Shemot that we actually have "lama." And when I, to my ears, when I heard "lama," I'm not thinking why. I'm thinking for what, for what purpose, hmm. and. I think it kind of fits in here where Moses is asking God, for what purpose are you doing this? Which is slightly different in terms of connotation than simply saying, why? Mm. Why are you doing this? Mm. Are you going to post that in the TBA Lama WhatsApp group? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So I want to go back to the words, Inyan shal mala. Mm -hmm. So when we got there, it is true that mala means previous but mala is often um, a reference to heaven. And so this whole discussion is about kind of what's going on in heaven. Um, <laughs> like, like God's reaction to all this, it's almost like they're saying he's having some discussion up there, maybe with the angels about, you know, this upstart Moshe, what, what's the matter with him? It, it, it's, it's a lovely possibility. I don't think it's shot. I think that mala here probably just means above. Right. But we, but we can add it to the, to, the, to, the, to the layers of what's going on here because it does seem like 
Rashi and the guy whom he quoted and the <coughs> quoting and is about to disagree with is, is expanding the conversation that happened between heaven and earth, between Moshe and God when Moshe is being given this job. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's, let, let's take all uh, two minutes we have left. So keep going, uh, Marshall. Okay. Uh, okay. It's and when Moses sought, I'm sorry, when Abraham sought to bury his, Sarah, he did not find a burial place for her until he, he acquired it with a lot of money. So uh, some versions of Rashi, instead of the word, using the word kever, have the word karka, land, same thing. Mm -hmm. Like if you can follow the argument, where are we in the argument? How, what is this reminder that Abraham didn't have land to bury Sarah until he bought it? What is it doing inside the argument that, that Rashi is bringing from the Midrash? Can someone put it together? Because mm -hmm. I know it's hard to remember. How? Yeah, but, and so how does this show that he didn't complain? We haven't gotten there yet. No, we have. This is the, the responsibility to everyone. Everyone, everyone who's here needs a microphone. Yeah. Abraham took responsibility to purchase land right. for the grave for Sarah. He did not say just like God magically give me a place to bury my right. wife. Right, and chronologically, and then we'll get to Ilan. The death and burial of Sarah happens after Brit ben Abtarim, the covenant that Avraham makes with God, in which Avraham is promised all that he's going to need. So the Rashi is saying, that the Midrash is saying, that God is saying to Moses, I promised Avraham that his needs would be taken care of, but not all of them immediately. And when Sarah died, Avraham did not turn to me and say, God, where am I going to bury her? He sold some some sheep and he took the coins and he paid full price for a burial prod. That's the way a responsible person does it, darn it. Elon, microphone and camera. Yeah, I'm going to put some modern sensibility to this, which is very different than that interpretation, which is actually, when I read it, I say, boy, Abraham's a schmuck. I can tell the guy to do anything. He'll do it. And actually, Moses is actually an interesting character because he will push back. To uh -huh. me, it is a much more compelling um, you know, Woody Allen has a bit about uh, the binding of Isaac and, and saying that, you know, some people will listen to a loud resonating voice, no matter what it tells it. And it's, I actually think that this is a feather in Moses's cap as opposed to a negative. Uh -huh. Good. So I, I, similar to Barry, we've, we've got some arguments on the table kind of pushing against the thrust of the Midrash. And we still don't even know what Rashi thinks about the Midrash, right? Because we're still within Rashi quoting the Midrash, right? We're going to have to end it there. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.